your last name, Glasgow or Glasgow? Actually, I say it both ways. Do you? Yeah. Okay. I was like, I, well, I, I don't want to say saying the name it more wrong. Glasgow. Glasgow. Because it's closer to what, how you would say the name of the city. Yeah. Yeah. I used to say Glasgow. Right. But I started saying Glasgow sort of more recently because it, it sounds more yeah. like the Glasgow. right way to say it. Hamida Glasgow. Right. Yeah. That sounds good to me. But I mean, Hamida Glasgow. <laughs> I mean, Hamida, they're both problematic. Glasgow. Like, oh, yeah. I've been saying for years that I have a friend, when he says Hamida, mm-hmm. he speaks Arabic. It's so beautiful. Oh, I bet. I bet. And so then I have another friend or a colleague who is from Scotland. And when he says Glasgow, it sounds so beautiful. Hmm. So what I've wanted to do is have them each record the part of my name you know, the, right, the place, right. and then put them together. And right. then people say, how do you say your name? And I'll hit play. Go play. Hi friends, I'm Blue Mitchell, photographer, publisher, and now podcaster. You're listening to The Diffusion Tapes, a podcast where I chat with photographers, curators, and writers working in the field of fine art photography. More specifically, these tapes are conversations with people I've befriended on my journey as an artist and publisher. So now I get to learn a little more about these folks that I admire and respect, and I'm inviting you into our conversation. Welcome to The Diffusion Tapes. Hello, tapeheads. Welcome to Diffusion Tape number nine. So before we jump into it, I just want to take a moment to reflect. I work for a healthcare company in the marketing department, and my creative work is picked up mostly due to COVID-19. But also, there's been a real push to create genuine, heartfelt projects that celebrate our frontline staff, as well as bring folks together in this time of distancing. Personally, I feel very fortunate to be busily employed in a positive work environment. But even more so, I feel happy to have a tight family unit and the option to spend a lot of quality time with them. I know not everyone's situation is like mine, but I do know we're resilient and strong. And hopefully we can take care of each other, even if we can't be physically close. I hope you and your families are safe, and more importantly, finding ways to laugh. Because as the cliche goes, it truly is the best medicine. Furthermore, I hope that Diffusion Tapes can provide a healthy and intriguing distraction during this time, even if just for an hour. It's been good for me to rediscover these conversations during the editing process. It reminds me of how important our relationships are, and I treasure them. Speaking of, let's get on with it. In this tape, I had the privilege to sit down with Hamida Glasgow last year during Photo Lucida. I can't believe it's been a year. Luckily, considering the time lapse, most of everything we talked about is not time-sensitive. I've known Hamida for a while now, but really haven't had a lot of opportunities to do a deep dive into her life experiences until now. I have to say, though, considering the number of intriguing stories brought up in this talk, I'm pretty sure we could do a good five-hour session. It sort of feels like we just scratched the surface here. 
In our chat, Hamida shares her unconventional and exciting career paths. The amazing work she's done as the executive director at the Center for Fine Art Photography in Fort Collins, Colorado, and her involvement with Strange Fire Collective. I think the only thing we missed talking about is our mutual love of good bourbon, although I did have my flask with me during the recording. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. Let's just jump into my conversation with Hamida Glasgow. So, okay, so I'm here in Portland at Photo Lucida with Hamida Glasgow, and uh, I think I actually met you at Photo Lucida, maybe, or I maybe, think so. it, yeah, it was either that or, I know we did the Cannon Beach reviews that one year they did that. I think I knew you before then, though. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, oh, the Cannon Beach one is when I think when I got to know you more, because it was such a small group of people. Right. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and then you invited us to do a show out there. Yeah, it was great. It was fun. I loved have that, having that show yes. at the center. Um, so Hamida is the executive director for the Center for Fine Art Photography in Fort Collins, Colorado. And uh, they have an amazing amount of stuff going on all the time. I can't keep up with what you're doing there. But I think I just wanted to jump right into that, actually. Okay. Um, um, when I first knew of the center, I didn't realize it was like a physical location when I first heard of it. And then right around the time that you that you started working there, all of a sudden the visibility changed. And I don't know how you did that, but I'm, I'm curious to learn about that. But also, you know, how the the programming seemed to be more visible. So there was something that, that changed when you came on board. Do you have any idea? I mean, was it just you? Or, I mean, how did you go about, like, doing that so quickly? Was it just your personality? or? You know, it's hard to tell because I'm, I'm the one that was there. Right. So you weren't there before. <laughs> I wasn't there before. Right. But I think I brought a different sensibility to the center than mm. the previous director. But I think that's sort of general. It, well, it depends on how the board is. Mm. And that's sort of a whole other side conversation. But sure. I, I bring a different sensibility. I think the previous director, who was the founder, mm. had a more conservative and traditional approach okay and so mine isn't hmm. that was it more regional then did it seem more about that area or no not at all hmm. from the beginning he was really set that it was an that it would be an international center i see and, okay. and so i have some of the original board members and original volunteers hmm. that talk about the early days like sort of pre-internet where they would sit down and i don't even know how they found these photo places around the world and they would you know, they each had sections of the world that they would write letters to oh. and send information to and try and get information back from. Wow. So, yeah. So from the very beginning, it was clear that, he, you know, it, it was going to be an international center. Okay. But I think it was more, the approach was more from a traditionalist f- photography point of view. Right, right. As opposed to uh, sort of what's happening in contemporary photography. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. Maybe that's why it popped on my radar. <laughs> and a lot of other people, right, I think. Yeah. Let's back up a little bit. I'm curious. Um, what? So you started there in, even there, 10 years, right? Yeah, I started in January of 2009. Okay. So what was your career prior to doing that? Well, um, I've had sort of the circuitous path uh, to getting to where I am. It's hmm. not even that. It's more like a winding road. But I've done... Um, so many different things, mostly because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So 
I've done everything from ski instructing and firefighting, and I taught English in Indonesia, and hmm. and I was a business development director. Sort of, I ended up it was sort of like the Peter Principal. I kept getting promoted to something that, you know, I mean, I, it was fine, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. Mm, sure. But directly before being at the center, I was I was in production in Los Angeles, so I did big budget commercials. Yeah. Okay. Um, which some people know what that is, and other people don't. But there, it's really almost like a small film mm-hmm. in terms of about back in the day when I did it. Uh, it was all shot on film, and we had these in- huge crews, and it was multi multi million dollar budgets, and wow. yeah. So were these uh, was were the commercials like a just longer commercials or were they like a series? They were. It wasn't even. Well, some of them were series. Like it was, you know, say twelve spots that we mm-hmm. were producing. Yeah. And others, there weren't that many spots, but they were just. I mean, we did crazy stuff. Like we, Eileen asked me to tell the story. I guess I had told it to her once, mm-hmm. um, but she asked me on this trip to tell it to someone else. But like we did this Jeep commercial. And uh, we had two prototype Jeeps, and we did the commercial in the Yukon. Hmm. So we airlifted this prototype Jeep up onto a glacier in the Yukon <laughs> via um, Hueys. They we had they were like the yeah. so we, you know we just did all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Is that where your um, love of helicopters absolutely is <laughs> from that? <laughs> Well, it was the Hueys are great. Oh my gosh, I think they're the sexiest things on the planet. Those those big helicopters. Right, right. Yeah, I you know what happens in that business is that once you do something, you be, you sort of become or people think that you're a specialist in that thing or at least you know all the rules that go around sure. that. So yeah. early on I did some spots with helicopters and I also got to travel early on. Hmm. I came up through the ranks. So as a coordinator, I worked, I don't even remember what the first helicopter spot was, but so then people say, oh, Hamida knows how to do helicopters. And so then you get more of those jobs. Right. And so I got to travel a lot and work on with helicopters a lot. Wow, that's great. Yeah. That's interesting. Did you have any interest in helicopters prior to that? Uh, no, not really. Well, no, that's actually, no, that's not true. I was going to say no, but um, when I was a ski bum and I was thinking about what else I might do with my life. Uh, I thought about becoming a helicopter pilot. Oh, that doesn't surprise me for some reason. Um, (laughs) But I, it was at a time when they told me that I had to take, I think you had to get your license as a, like a fixed wing pilot first. And so I started taking some lessons and I was really not impressed with being a small plane pilot. Right. That didn't, wasn't interesting to me. Sure. And then someone that I forget, someone I was talking to was telling me that, oh, there's so many Vietnam vets that are pilots that mm-hmm. flew in Vietnam. There's just no way you'll right. be able to compete with that. Like it's saturated. Yeah. yeah. Which I found out later isn't, wasn't true. And uh, that, oh, actually, you know what? So I just realized this. I didn't put it, for some reason, I didn't put it together. But when I was a firefighter, one of my first fires, I got flown in on a helicopter mm. was with the doors off. Fire? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, it was a forest fire. Mm-hmm. And the guy was a Vietnam vet 
Mm. that was flying it and he um, we flew in and it was just like the movies like we flew in and the doors are off and we come up over this hill like in a helicopter and then we'd go forward and it, you know and um and i i was like oh my god that was the best thing ever <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great <laughs> yeah it was fun so i got fun. flown into a couple fires yeah yeah by helicopter and that's how i we definitely have a helicopter history then I do. Actually, it's funny because I recently, well, several years ago, I went on a road trip with my niece, one of my nieces, and uh, we were at uh, Mount Rushmore, and then, what's the one that's right near it? Crazy Horse? Yes. Crazy Horse. Yeah. Well, so we were driving to go, we had just done that, we went to both, and of course, Crazy Horse is way, way better than the, right. I call them the White Overlords, that's what I call them, Mount Rushmore. <laughs> It's about right. It's pretty evil. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we were driving, and all, uh, to the right, there was a thing where you could go take a helicopter ride around Rushmore and Crazy Horse. Nice. And so uh, we were like, I made this, like, you know, turn. And we went, and we did this helicopter okay. ride. So I have a little, they had a helicopters that you could buy, like the squeezy for your hand, like stress relief. Yeah, yeah. So I have one in my office. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Speaking of things in your office, oh, isn't there a piece of toast on your wall? There is. Is it still there? It's still there. <laughs> What's the story on the toast? Well, the toast was years, and it actually hasn't changed. I think it's been at least five years, and it looks no different than the first night. Really? That exactly the same. Exactly the same, which is frightening, because <laughs> um, it was like wheat bread. Right, right. It was at a reception night. And there were tons of people, and it was a big event. And two of the people that were working at the center, one of them put toast in the toaster, or bread in the toaster, mm-hmm. and didn't eat it. And we kept saying, hey, you know, your toast is ready. Your toast is ready. And then, so then it started to become a joke. Like, hey, did you eat your toast? Did, you know. <laughs> and, then, and then we came back, and there was a little note on the toaster that said, I've abandoned or something to the effect of, like, I've abandoned my toast. It, you know, it's up for grabs. Oh, okay. And then somebody took the toast and put it in someone's drawer, and then it got... I didn't... It was, so like, this moving part, around. <laughs> yeah, at this point, I'm being hostess. And right. so I didn't, I didn't know didn't all know that know about part. the toast. <laughs> well, I, you know, I was just too busy to deal with toast. But apparently, it sort of was getting moved around. And then, but at the end of the night, when I went back to my office, the toast was pinned to my wall with push pins. <laughs> And then it just stayed there, and then we started, I've you know, taking pictures of people with the toast. Right, right. And then someone came and put, uh, left crackers there because they said there wasn't any bread to toast to add to the toast. So it just became sort of this thing. Right. And then the fact that the bread never changes. <laughs> Permanently you, the same. Like, how do you get rid of that? Right. So it's still there. That's great. It's still there. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I think that, and the thing about the toast is that it's not, so I think for me, it, it it's sort of a random thing. I think people think it's random, but it's not. I think that that's part of it. It's like what happens in everyday life and these sort of oddities about, to me, that's what makes life fun. Right. Right. It's that, this strange piece of toast ended up on my wall. Like, why would I take that down? Right, That's right. part of what makes... Well, there's such, like, it was like a benign kind of object turned into, like, an event. 
Right. And then it became a permanent installation. <laughs> right. And then it be, and then people come in and they look at me and then they, they look at the toast and some people are afraid to ask and some right. people are... So it becomes this whole sort of, not even a social experiment, but a little bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and then it becomes like this, it's like a fable. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. And we're talking about it now, right? So right. <laughs> the toast and lives on. <laughs> when we moved, it's in the new administrative office. Oh, that's right. So tell me about the, the changes. So you've been there 10 years at the center. We're going to jump back to that subject since yeah. you brought it up. Um, and then when I, so I went there, I think it was 2015 that we did the diffusion show, somewhere around there. Was the it, toast there then? Yeah, the toast was there. Yeah, so it's yeah. been... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I was like, there's a toast on the wall. And, um, and then I think when I, when I actually talked to you about it, you didn't say anything to me about it at first. Like I was asking about it and you wouldn't respond really yeah well you know just like keep the mystery going yeah <laughs> you just smiled at me I was like, okay <laughs> anyways when i went there um i went there expecting to just be there for our diffusion show but also going on concurrently was the center forward show for the year and claire warden had a solo show so we had two diffusion artists that were there and then you had several Center Forest artists there, and then Claire was there. And then you did, uh, we did portfolio reviews, and and then, gosh, we went out to the lake. I mean, it was a great trip. I had a really good time, and I bonded with all these artists and, and the people that were, you know, in, in Colorado. I've never been there to Fort Collins. So um, I just went there, left going, like, wow, that was like a retreat. I was expecting, like, a just a show, you know? <laughs> and I had, like, this revived energy when I came home, and so... That was like my aha moment, like why things were so cool at, after you'd been there, you know, because I felt like, okay, she's turned this into, it's really about community and, and really like the diversity of the types of work that you were, you know, are showing and, and you're able to draw people into Fort Collins from all over the place, which I was like, that's really impressed me as well. Like people are going to Colorado, to Fort Collins, where that's a smaller town really, like comparatively. Right. Um, but you know, I think it just has this enchanting thing and then, and then you make it that way. It becomes enchanting and people want to come back. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, that developed, um, because people were coming to our receptions, mm -hmm. traveling, traveling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I should say, yeah. Traveling, yeah. traveling out to the receptions. And so it sort of built over time. I thought, well, you know, we need to go to dinner. Mm, we can't sure. just let them go home right, right they came all this way yeah and then it was um what if we did portfolio reviews then mm -hmm. with the juror because we bring the juror out so i thought well that would be great right, right and then i thought well they're still here so well what if we did portfolio sharing because people love to share work with each other and and then you know and then people get to have lunch together and mm -hmm. so it sort of built over time based on what i was, I saw as lost opportunities for right, people and right, for me right, to right. get to know artists, for me to get to know the jurors, but for, you know, people have quality time. And then what I found was that people were having these really impactful experiences, both personally and professionally. And so mm -hmm. then it, to me, it's just such a great opportunity for everybody to be able to get to know each other. And so many photographers have helped each other from getting to know each other sure. uh, during that what we call artist immersion Saturday and that hmm. sort of over time it got that name, but you know, people have published other people's books and right. have, you know, um, 
curated people into shows and you know just so many different things if you become best friends yeah yeah well um, that's true for me too because i after meeting some of the artists that were in attendance and seeing some of the work in center forward i have several of them in the next issue of diffusion because of my experience there so right yeah I, I i thought it was a great a great little little event you know like i'm used to these large crazy events so it's so nice to just have like a nice very intimate small event since then though things have changed for the center so are you not in that current space anymore? We're not. We um, t- So we decided as an organization to change our model. Mm-hmm. Sort of long story short is that that building had sold a couple of times. So our original reason for being there was because it was going to be an artist's sort of space. Mm. But then the last time the building sold, that changed. And so we were the only art space there. All the artists that were there before and the arts organizations and the galleries all left. Hmm. And so it became this... They moved to a different neighborhood? They moved to... Yeah, they just sort of dispersed because whatever the reasons. um, And so it became sort of more of an island. Hmm. And it wasn't really what... We want to be in community. Like I, I believe that the arts are better when we're together and we're working together and in community with different artists and different. So, um, so I had been looking for a place to move for a really long time and Fort Collins the is exploding like the, the housing prices and, um, commercial rents and all of that. And we couldn't find anything Hmm. that was appropriate. Um, we could have renewed our lease for three more years, but it didn't make sense to Hmm. us. Like, so we decided that, to make this move and to, you know, move into administrative offices and do our programming in other places. Hmm. And actually, before we made that move, I started asking around. We have an executive director's meeting in Fort Collins for the different arts oh, groups. For the, oh, that's nice. And, um, and I talked to people about that, and then I reached, I reached out to some of the different EDs around. And within... I think within like two weeks I had eight places that were interested or six places that were interested in working with us. And so I thought, Oh, okay. This, this seems great. Um, It's also a response to the changing industry though. You know, the center was founded by doing calls for entry. That was what it's been based on. Mm -hmm. And I've been, you know, over the years, you know, writing more grants and doing more, a lot more like sponsorships and, and, and those kinds of things. But the market's, t- it's totally changing. Our industry's changing. Sure. So, and so there's having, less people doing a uh, call for arts. Absolutely. That, yeah. No, there's more people doing calls and less people submitting. So, submitting. Um, and so that's also, you know, we're looking at where we spend our, our resources. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so not having such high overhead makes us a lot more nimble as an organization and, and able yeah. to to put our resources, to manage our resources and, and put them into different sort of line items. Sure. But it also seems like it helps um, all the organizations involved, right? Because then you have a lot of crossover, which is Absolutely. really the whole concept of community anyway, right? Having, Absolutely. Having people be able to see both worlds instead of being like a separate deal. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. And and so we it's it's actually been fantastic. Uh, it's funny because every once in a while people come up to me and they say, I'm so sorry you lost your space. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, I love this. Sure. Because there's really amazing spaces that we program. 
Um, one's an old Carnegie library. It's hmm. stunning, like huge high ceilings. It nice. has three distinct galleries. We're able to program those all together and bring people out so that it's even a bigger event like the one that you experienced. Sure. And we've collaborated with, um, I co-curated an exhibition at the Center for Visual Art in Denver okay. this spring. And um, we're working with the with the airport now. We just um, are starting to collaborate with them again. Mm-hmm. And the art museum in town. So, nice. yeah, it's really, it's, it's so much... Be, it's so much better because we're back in community. Right, right. Where we had, it was sort of, we were sort of cut off for a while. Or I, we, we felt cut off. Right. Well, that works great when you're doing all these events and international people showing up. But if you're not actually on the day-to-day within your own community, it's definitely isolating. Yeah. For sure. Well, it's, it's intriguing the way you're doing it. It seems like it, the, what you said is like that frees you up, too, in a lot of ways. You know, you can take. Um, more unique paths this way right you, you're not confined by your space now really exactly and i mean we could have been doing those collaborations all along but the difference is we had you know three distinct galleries that we were programming mm-hmm. and so we needed people come we had to get people to come to see us right. so if there was an opportunity it was like well how does that get people in our doors how does that get people to see the work that we have on exhibition here. Um, And so now, you know, like one great thing that happened was Colleen Plum and her um, videos of the, her large scale projections of the elephant videos. Do you know that work? Yeah, I do. So when she came to town, we were doing the projections. Mm -hmm. And um, so I talked to the museum in town about hosting the event and they said yes. And Temple Grandin, um, who's from Fort Collins, one of my board members, contacted Temple and said, are you interested? And she said, yes. And so we had Temple Grandin talking with Colleen Plum wow, at the museum in town. So it was, you know, the museum audience and people who, Temple's audience and, right, yeah. you know, people who were interested in what Colleen was doing. So to, it's like, to me, it's so much more dynamic. Right. Like there's so much more energy and different communities that were, were able to to connect with, even though it feels like that should have been happening at the other space, right. it didn't come so easy there. It was sure. much harder. Right. It seems like there's do. probably more logistics in, involved with that, trying to get people to all spaces, right? Maybe. But if you, yeah, I don't know. It seems like if, you, if you're able to focus your energy on collaborating, it seems like a great idea. Yeah. I mean, it's going to expand the visibility of the center, really. Great time to take work. Temple Grandin's funny too. Is she? She's amazing. Yeah, I've what seen an some, amazing I think woman. I saw a watch documentary about her. One of the, she's uh, she's just she's like so much herself. You know how some people you just you like uh, for me when I meet people like that I just think that's so fabulous. She's just so much herself. Right. She's not hiding anything. Or, she's not hiding. She's not yeah. trying to be someone. Or at least you know from she just is. Um, there's just so much power in people who are just being themselves and mm-hmm. not trying to fit some strange idea that society has put on them. Right. But her, one of her pieces of advice that I'd like to pass on to your listeners, yes, you might edit this, but <laughs> she says, she says, she says, people, when you walk your dogs, you got to let them get their pee mail. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> dogs need their P-mail. <laughs> she realize how funny that is? Oh my I gosh. don't know, but I think about it all the time now when I'm like, come on, no. Oh, no. They got to get their P-mail. <laughs> <laughs> it's classic. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So you have a BA in philosophy. I do. And then it seemed like quite a while later, you went back and studied and got a master's of humanities, Mm -hmm. which is in gender studies, women's studies. Yeah. I, so I got my bachelor's degree 10 years after I graduated, just about 10 years after I graduated from high school. Okay. Yeah. So I tried to go to school right after high school and I, hated it well i hated high school sure and then i tried to do college but that wasn't for me so that's when i said i was just like what do what do i really want to do because i clearly don't want to do this so i really wanted to ski so that's what i did but anyway yeah i went back to school right before i got the job at the center i started a master's program okay and um i had looked around i was looking at mfas i was looking at different programs but i really wanted something that was broad Hmm. i barely graduated high school I had such a bad time in high school. I was in gifted programs when I was a kid. And mm. I sort of, when I, by the time I got to high school, I just couldn't make sense of anything. And I just hated it. Right. So I, what I knew was, even though I had a bachelor's degree, I knew that there were so many holes in my knowledge that I needed to go back and get sort of a broad base education. I right. didn't, everything felt too focused to me. So this, there's a program at University of Colorado, Denver. It's a master's. It's it's an interdisciplinary master's in humanities. Hmm. And so there's sort of three required courses and everything else you design with your advisor. Okay. And that was really appealing to me, partly because I'm pretty anti-authority. I don't want people to tell me, like, you mm-hmm. have to do this, 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 yeah, and this. It's, it's nice to be able to choose your path. Right? Well, and also as an, you know, an adult, it's like you don't want to take a class because you have to because it fits this requirement. Right. I don't want to waste my time. <laughs> I don't want to waste my time. Exactly. So at the, I, when I did all this research, but that was definitely the program I wanted to do. And you can specialize in visual studies, which is what I did. And then mm-hmm. they have a gender, and uh, women and gender graduate certificate i see so um i loved it i i i started it right before i started the job in 2009 and i graduated in 2015 because i took one class a semester you had to go the slow route (laughs) well yeah i was working full-time and so i and i took my classes in denver so i had to drive to denver one night a week sure nice so i'm curious then from that, I can see the influence of your interest in, with your degree in in the programming at the center, and then in your it's a is it considered a collective mm-hmm. strange fire um, collective? I also see it in that. So I'm curious. Right. Um, well, first let's talk about strange fire. How did that come about? It's a collaboration between four of you. Five of you. It is. Yeah, oh, four there's four. Jess Dugan, Raphael Soldi, Zora Murph, and I. Nice. That started, I believe, just sent out an email to a, a, a lot of people about agency and representation in photography. Hmm. And sh- 
I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Jess was the organizer and basically wanted to put on a panel discussion or something at SPE. Okay. And so a lot of people responded. I, I, you know, I don't remember exactly how it went down, but I think there was a conference call and, mm-hmm. and then it sort of ended up being the four of us that were still involved and put together a proposal for a panel discussion at SPE. Okay. And then that was rejected. Oh. And so after that, we had a conversation and it sort of went like, well, do we, is that it? Are we done? Um, And none of us were done. So Hmm. we just talked it through and decided to start this collective. Nice. And then we, you know, figured out a name and what it would look like. Yeah. So we settled on the once a week original interview. Okay. And then we've expanded from that. Yeah. It seems like you have like book reviews and stuff going on too. Mm-hmm. So, so basically each week a new interview is released on your website and, right. and one of your collective members has done, conducted the interview. Right. So, um, and then we have contributors. Oh, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, so other people do interviews as well or, Occasionally, yeah. People, okay. Other people will do. Great. So as far as the kind of people that you're interviewing specifically, what what's your focus on the work you're looking at? and Or is it really specifically to the, just the people? Or is it really about the work? I mean, how are you finding your folks, I guess? And what's your, what's your like, you know, you know, reason behind it? Well, the collective is uh, based on um, showing underrepresented artists we're really interested in agency and representation. So, sure. so we feature women, people of color, LGBTQ artists. And so my approach has sort of changed over time, depending on what other people are showing, you know, who, who other people are interviewing, mm-hmm. what, where I feel like we, if we haven't addressed something or. So, yeah. So you're really focused on the underrepresented Right. Either yeah. thematically or, you know, the people in general, like who's mm-hmm. getting a lot of spo- exposure and who should be getting exposure and is not. Right. That and topics, uh, for instance, you know, women's issues, there's mm-hmm. topics that w- haven't been addressed yet in, you know, in, just in terms of women's issues. Sure. Um, I've been a pretty strong feminist since I was young when I was told I couldn't get a paper route because I was a girl. Really? Yeah. Oh. So I went and got a paper out, LA Times, way back when. And I think I was one of the first girls. Actually, I was thinking about this that the other day. I thought, I wonder, that would be interesting to see what the history is. But yeah, they said, you can't have a paper out. You're a girl. I was like, no, I'm going to get a paper out. How bizarre. Yeah. Well, that's, but that's the thing. I think there's so many things that women are so used to, but we just don't even talk about it so much. Right, right. And then I think with this whole Me Too movement, I think a lot of men are starting to to say, wow, I had no idea that that's how things are. Right. Oh, I totally agree. Um, I get surprised just like that. I mean, I, out of all things, like a paper route? Like, <laughs> it's very surprising to me. Yeah. I think that, you know, I think especially as a white male, I, you know, I have that inherent privilege but it, it 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 becomes ignorant sometimes because if people aren't talking to you and telling you or if you're not seeking out information you know you're right. not, you won't be educated about it but even little things like that you know i think of larger issues when i think about you know how 
things are completely unequal. But I never think about those littler things because that's really the, that's actually the source of the problem is that kind of thing, the little things. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's the, it's sort of like the um, basket that we hold the world in. So if women aren't equal, aren't seen as equal or treated as equal, then those things like, you know, quote unquote, little things, there are, they aren't little, they're huge, mm-hmm. but they seem like little things in, you know, the scheme of things, in right. the scheme of things or mm-hmm. related if you compare it to something else, right. but it's pretty big. If you're, if you're a little girl and yeah, you're, if, you're told you no, you don't, can't do that. You're a girl. Right. No, girls don't do that. Yeah. That's like the world coming down on you at that age. <laughs> what? What do you mean? Absolutely. I can't do that. Why are you wearing pants? You should right. be wearing a dress. Yeah, no. Uh, that bothers me. <laughs> yeah. So, but I've been like that since I was young. Right. As far back as I can remember, I remember thinking, wait a minute. Why do boys get to do that? Why don't mm-hmm. I get to do that? Right, right. So, yeah, it's a problem. So, for me, uh, I, I, I've i always, I you know, I volunteered for the ACLU when I was younger. Mm-hmm. It's always been part of who I am. Sure. Yeah, well, I can see it in just your interest in, in you know, your themes in all the stuff you do you know i think what i've enjoyed about it is our interest in with diffusion and stuff is really more this artistic use of photography and content and you know social issues has not been on the forefront of the things that that i'm interested in and i think a lot of times i feel like i keep seeing the same stories over and over so i i kind of start to lose interest and I'm, i'm i'm glad that what you're focusing on is things that are unique and also telling those stories. And so it's not just the same things coming over and over. Right. And that's, that's what I'm appreciating about what you're doing because then I, then I become engaged again and excited Mm. about other types of photography. Whereas, you know, for a while I was feeling like, I just keep seeing the same social themes over and over. And, and maybe it's also the climate, like maybe it has, you know, maybe there is more diversity in this what am I talking about? <laughs> you mean the diverse voices are now, people are more interested in them? Yeah, I feel like they're coming more to the forefront because because there's people like you, they're helping push that up and, and the stories are becoming a little bit more loud, I think, from people that you weren't really hearing a lot from. And maybe that's because there's a lot of gatekeepers that weren't allowing access, right? Well, things have changed a lot. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, so if you, if you look at... Uh, Sure, gatekeepers. I mean, and that's part of the sort of you know inequity. I mean, most museum curators are white men. Mm-hmm. Most gatekeepers are white men. Right. Um, and so, of course, that it comes with a, for the most part, comes with a certain perspective. And so, I think that as people focus on diversity, that's changing too slowly, way too slowly, but sure. it's changing. But also, you know, if you look at the country, I mean you know, gay marriage was legalized, you know, so many different aspects of society have changed pretty quickly. Sure. Um, and then I think what's happened is that, you know, given current politics, it's pushing against that and rolling back right. uh, not only right. human rights issues, but um, environmental issues and, you know, rolling back legislation that's that was creating progress that's being rolled back. Mm -hmm. And I think, so people are then saying, wait a minute, people are becoming more vocal about it. Sure. 
Well, and the technology has helped. I mean, now that we have so many ways of communicating with people too i think that right. that helps you know it helps unite people really i think that's like the biggest thing for me is people are being able to unite and, and then share those stories with each other a lot easier the gatekeepers are like not keeping it at bay anymore <laughs> um so as far as uh future projects for the collective are you are you keeping the interviews is there other things you guys are doing is there you know exhibits or anything coming up SPE talks, now they'll invite you back. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, SPE, you always have to, except for the keynotes, you know, the top keynotes, mm-hmm. you have to always submit have to proposals. submit proposals. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this won't come out for a while, so I can tell, I can tell you. But um, we uh, are invited as the keynotes for the Midwest SPE. Oh, great. So we'll be doing a, a lecture, and I'm curating... Well, as, an, as a collective, we're curating an exhibition of people that have been featured in Strange Fire. Excellent. And that'll be at the, at the university there. And then I'm curating a show for my colleagues that are all active artists. So there'll be two exhibitions. And then we're doing, as a collective, we're going to be going out and doing programming with students. And Nice. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So... Do do they all live close to you? Where's everybody? No, no, we're across so, the. So you're just networking and doing this stuff together. Yeah, that's great. Well, and that's part of the you know the digital, the way that you know in social media and all that we're right. able to do everything. I think we've been all been in the same room two times. <laughs> so that'll be fun about the conference, right? Absolutely, you can all be there. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're carving out some retreat time, Good. some strange fire re- retreat time, so that we can really spend time face-to-face as opposed to on conference calls or video calls or... Excellent. That's great. Yeah. It's oh. exciting. And they're all they're all on fire in terms of their own artistic careers and paths. And Excellent. So that's really exciting. So you mentioned uh, when you were talking about your paper route, you said LA Times. So did you grow up in LA? I did. Yeah. Did you... How did you end up in Colorado? I think it was LA Times. Maybe it was an, a different paper... Maybe it was the Eagle Rock Sentinel. I don't remember. It was, yeah, I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but so were your parents from L.A.? Or what, how did your family get to L.A.? No, my parents were born and raised in Provo, Utah. Oh, in Utah, okay. Yeah. All right, but they weren't Mormon, right? No. Yeah. Uh, well, my mom's mom was adopted by a Mormon woman, a, a widow, who had, I think, like 12 other children and uh-huh. adopted my mom. Uh, my grandma. So right. they were Mormon. They were the Youngs. The Youngs. As in Brigham Young. Wow, yeah. Yeah. But my mom's dad was uh, French-Canadian Catholic. Okay. okay. And my dad's parents were Baptist. Okay. Which wow. Back in the, the day board. was... I think I I, I want to say Provo was like ninety eight percent Mormon back then. Right. <laughs> so definitely the religious minority in town. Yeah. <laughs> and then so what brought them out to LA? Well, my father was an artist, hmm. and uh, well, they were both sort of they were beatniks. They moved to San Francisco. They were beatniks. You know, hate Ashbury, like the whole okay. thing. And my dad was an artist, and. My mom was really clear that she did not want us raised in an all-white community. Oh, sure. She would, when we were older, she would tell me stories about things that she saw 
when she was growing up and mm-hmm. that she experienced and she said she it was really she it was really important for her that we were raised in a community that was made up of people from all over the world uh, that spoke different languages mm-hmm. that um so that we would have a different sense of of um people sure the racism she saw was really disturbing to her yeah that makes sense well LA's a good place for that it's kind of a melting pot yeah and as an artist it was you know it was a better place for my father sure what kind of artwork did he do he was a ceramic artist okay so if you look if you pull out um the history of ceramics Mm -hmm. he's in there somewhere in almost every book nice yeah (laughs) that's great yeah so did he do like functional pieces or did he do more artistic uh he did a combination but uh in the end it was he always there was always some sort of not always but a lot of his pieces had some sort of functional aspect to them Hmm. which is one of the reasons why supposedly his work he didn't wasn't as famous as he could have been Hmm. um because i guess in that world there's like if it's your if it's functional then it's not art but if you look on Elton John's, the album where Elton John's sitting at the piano, yeah. the black piano, he's in the white suit. Mm-hmm. On either side of Elton John, there's two ceramic heads. Yeah. Those are my dad's. Oh, great. Elton John was a collector back in the day. Huh. That's great. Yeah. Huh. So then, and he also took photographs, right? He did. Yeah. And he had a camera all the time. So you were kind of all exposed to photography and artwork at a pretty young age. Yeah. What about you? Did you do any of that stuff when you were a kid? Or, um, Well, my parents... You know, I took photography in high school, okay. and I loved it, and yeah. I was terrible at it, but I loved it. <laughs> sure. My dad was so into his artwork, and his friends were artists, and I sort of went the other way. Like, I thought that they were all weird, and I mm. just wanted normal people to be around. <laughs> so I really... I tried to be normal, and I tried to have normal friends. And sure. I know that sounds really weird, but it wasn't until later I was like, wait a minute, the really interesting people aren't sort of quote unquote normal. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I guess I fought that when I was younger. But sure. Well, it makes sense because you grew up in that and you're kind of, if, if you're a natural rebellion, <laughs> whatever they're doing is weird. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm off doing something else. Yeah, so I, I grew up in L.A. Uh, I spent most of my life in L.A. Nice. And then, so when you got at, went to college, and then how'd you end up in Fort Collins? Well, when I was in L.A. and I was producing, I got to the point where, so I didn't mean to get into the, you know, the making commercials. I, I did some TV shows, and I didn't, it wasn't ever, that wasn't an on-purpose thing. Hmm. I I sort of fell into it. Uh, through nepotism and then stayed in it for whatever reasons. And then I got to the point, I mean, it was about 14 years, but the last couple of years I was miserable. I hated it. I mean, I would cry almost every night because I hated what I did for work on the nights I worked. Like when I wasn't working, I wasn't crying. Sure, sure. But when I was working, (laughs) I would cry. Right. So at a certain point I thought this is, this is ridiculous. I have to do something else. And so I really started to plan what, you know, what does, a, what is a life that I want? I knew I didn't want to be in LA. I knew I didn't want to do what I was doing. And so I sort of went about it half like intuition and half research. No, sure. So I researched, 
I wrote down everything I wanted in a life. And then I wrote down places that would potentially work. For all those things pr- that yeah. you wanted, right? And, and that was close to my family, because I'm really close to my family. Mm-hmm. And, and then, um, so I, I stopped doing freelance work. I sold my house. I put everything in storage, and, or, or things that I wanted to keep. And then I, I traveled for about a year and a half, and I took workshops, and I got involved in some nonprofit work, and was doing photography, and just <laughs> like... And then I would visit all these places on the list that I had made. But I like Portland was on my list. Right, right. And I came here and I met with friends and friends of family and friends of friends. And when I was here, I was like, this is so great, but I want to go home. But I didn't know where home was. Sure. And so finally, the last place on my list, not they weren't ranked, but was Colorado. And I thought, oh, my God, if this, if this is not, I do not know where I'm going to end up. <laughs> and I am so ready to be off the road. Sure. But as soon as I got to Colorado, I thought, I think this is it. Hmm. And then within three days, I was, I just knew it was the right place. Wow. And so I looked for an apartment. Um, I had to go back to LA for something. I put a, a lease because I, I put in an application and I got the place and I packed my stuff up and moved out. Didn't have a job. Wow. Yeah. Did you know many people there? No. no? I, I knew a few people. Sure. So, um, it was hard. It wasn't easy. It right. was really hard, but, but I love it there. And it's, it feels like home in a, in a way that other places I've lived never felt like home. That's excellent. You found your spot. I love the way you went about finding it. <laughs> Most people just kind of end up places. You planned it out, you know? I mean, but it was a combination too. It was right. really, cause, uh, like I said, there were places I visited that I thought this is fantastic, but it just didn't feel right. Right. And mm. I really believe in intuition. Sure. I feel like you have to trust your, your gut. That's a great place for us to start. <laughs> I mean, stop <laughs> and start. Well, thank you. Thank I really you appreciate so you sitting down with me. This is great. Absolutely. It's fun. This is your free time and you spend it with me instead of going out and playing. In no, the it's sun. fun. It's fun. And uh, I think it's a great, this is a great project that you're doing. I've always loved what you do. Well, thank you. I mean, I think it's so important that people do what... Like, it, like, you were talking about trusting your gut, but mm-hmm. I think it's important that you do the work that you're called to do, because if everyone was doing social justice stuff, that would be pretty boring. Right, if right. everyone was focused on, you know, alternative processes, and, you know, that would be boring. Yeah. But I love alternative processes, and I love to see what people are doing, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I love to watch what you're doing. So, yeah, I mean you know, war photographers and, right, you yeah. know, it's like, that's what makes the world so interesting. Sure. Yeah. The diversity. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyways, I like, appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Yeah. All right. There you have it. Hamida is fantastic. I enjoyed that. She talked about her love of helicopters at the top of the chat. Obviously, I learn a lot about people during these conversations, but I also learn a lot about the art of conversation itself. My guests often make my job easy because they tend to set up the segues for me, as Hamida did several times in this talk. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed my tape with Hamida. I posted links to all the things we talked about in the conversation, but please do check out what Strange Fire Collective is cooking up, as well as the many moving parts that are the Center for Fine Art Photography. To finish off my never-ending season one, in my next tape, I sit down with photographer and friend Ken Rosenthal. It was a huge pleasure to catch up with this man in person. 
Maybe let's just start at the beginning. Well, not really the beginning. So, on the day you were born. <laughs> yes. And, and we, okay, the day I was born, I was actually born on the same day and was in the adjacent crib as Bridget Fonda, apparently, which was kind of weird. So, wow. I had to grow up listening to my dad talking about, you know, sitting there comparing notes with Henry Fonda. 